This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Imagine being chased down by one of the world's fastest animals. If you're unfortunate to be caught and grabbed by their large, strong mandibles, well, the rest of the story would not be a pretty sight. Luckily, if you're not the size of a quarter, you have nothing to fear, because the animal I'm talking about is the tiger beetle, one of the best hunters and fastest animals in the world. How fast are tiger beetles? I've heard they can run so fast that they go blind. We'll learn more about these colorful animals and their amazing speed from our guest scientist, David Pearson. Dr. Pearson is a research professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University and an expert on tiger beetles. Pearson is also a world traveler and author of numerous books and travel guides. He recently co-authored a book titled A Field Guide to Tiger Beetles in the United States and Canada, which is published by Oxford University Press. This latest book provides both experts and people new to the study of tiger beetles a wonderful collection of information about these insects and includes a large collection of color photo illustrations detailing over 200 tiger beetle species found in North America. Welcome to the show, Professor Pearson. It's fun to be here, Dr. Biology. When I first walked into your office, and this is a couple years back, the first thing I noticed was this wonderful large world map and it was filled full of these push pins. Can you tell me about that map and the push pins? Well, this is a way that biologists get to brag about their travels. It also helps the students who come in get interested in something I'm doing and, and breaks the ice on helping us talk about a lot of things besides just biology. But those pins indicate places that I've been, uh, study sites have been around the world. The other thing I was curious about, as a world traveler, one of the things or tools I'd say you have is you speak languages other than English. How many languages do you speak? Well, I'm not sure exactly about the uh, definition of, of speaking well. I can communicate pretty well and teach courses in about uh, five languages and get in trouble in maybe three or four other languages. What's your favorite language? Oh, I'd have to say Spanish is probably, after English, Spanish is probably my favorite language. We're talking today about these tiger beetles, and the tiger beetles, when I look at your book, it has this you know large collection of just amazing images of the tiger beetles and what's amazing about them are the colors. Uh, some of them look like they've been chrome plated, some of them look like they have a, an expensive paint job that you might see on a car. Other tiger beetles have these uh, patterns to them which might be where they got their names. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about the coloration and their importance to the tiger beetles. The, the color of the tiger beetles in the first place has been something that's attracted a lot of amateurs and professionals to studying them much like butterflies in some ways. They're, they're more subtle and you have to look harder to see them, but once you know where to look, these colors help keep your interest up, especially if you're just beginning. But the colors we've found have several functions. One, of course, is that they uh, help camouflage. We find that uh, most species of tiger beetles have a color that very closely matches the background of the ground on which they run. Other species of tiger beetles are, have a color that is not quite so obviously camouflaged and as a matter of fact stands out like a sore thumb in being so bright. And we found out that these species of tiger beetles appear to be mimicking or looking like other more dangerous things like wasps and ants. And they are cheating, uh, more or less, but uh, they get the advantage of uh, fooling the predators. Also, we find out some colors actually help, light colors and dark colors, especially in making sure that these beetles can control their temperatures inside. They can, if they're very dark, they can stand out in the sun and absorb the sun faster or if they're very white, they can reflect some colors and occur in some very hot areas by reflecting those uh, waves of energy coming from the sun. 
when I saw the map and all those pins, I couldn't help but believe that you can just about find tiger beetles anywhere in the world. Is there any place you can't? Well, in some ways, it's kind of an excuse. It's a fun excuse to have to be able to run off to any part of the world because tiger beetles occur everywhere except Hawaii, the Antarctica, and a group of islands called the Maldives off the southern tip of India, and Tasmania. And sometimes wondering why they don't occur in these places is a little hard, but they do occur everywhere else. And we have uh, found them uh, as high as 13 to 14,000 feet elevation and as low as minus 200 feet elevation. Wow. So how many species? Well, right now, uh, we're, we're finding new species every year, but right now it's around 2,600 species. So it's a, it's a fun number because it's not overwhelming. It's a manageable number. On the other hand, it's enough to actually use them to do some fairly sophisticated studies of comparisons, especially. I was curious. Um, I was doing some reading, of course, before we got to sit down and chat today. One of the things I read about is that uh, the tiger beetles can run so fast they go blind. Is that really true? That's, that's a, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but actually they do run fast enough that their neural system and their eyes trying to interpret the signals coming from them come in too fast. They run that fast. And uh, as a matter of fact, the tiger beetle has to stop and reorient itself because it's run beyond its ability to see where it was going. So how fast can a tiger beetle run? Well, tiger beetles actually now have been clocked uh, on the ground as, for their size, being the fastest running insect in the world. If they were the size of a horse and you were able to extrapolate the, the, the size and, and speed from that, they'd be running probably two or three hundred miles per hour. So they're very, very fast. Hmm. If they can run that fast, what is it like for something that they're hunting? They are totally predacious. They feed on other insects ants and spiders and the numerous other types of insects running in the ground. And part of their name comes, the name tiger comes from the fact that they do uh, visually pursue these other organisms and pounce on them and tear them apart with their mandibles. Hmm. When they pounce on them, have you, you know, the descriptions I've heard are somewhat, since it's Halloween, <laughs> gruesome, but uh, how do they actually? Well, if you're a tiger beetle, it's not gruesome, but sometimes watching it, uh, they have these very large, long, thin mandibles that are li almost like swords with little teeth sticking out of them. And they grab the prey item, uh, an ant or a small spider. They start to crush it and tear it apart. And then they spit up their saliva, which helps to digest these insects outside their body, uh, even before they start to suck in the juices of the, of the insect they're chewing on. Well, I can see how you've got or at least remain interested in tiger beetles, but what got you started? Well, I got started in tiger beetles back in Minnesota. I was actually a boy bird watcher when I was very young, and in the middle of the day, the birds would become very, very slow, hard to find because they, they were becoming inactive with the heat of Minnesota, if you can believe that. And it's exactly that time when these tiger beetles become active. Uh, so it was a good way to fill in that hiatus in the middle of the day when the birds weren't active. After a while, the tiger beetles became more interesting than the birds. As you've been studying the tiger beetles, besides understanding how and where they live and how they eat, do they have other functions? Or do they have some other story to tell us, so to speak? A big part of what we're using the tiger beetles now, because we do know so much about them, we know more about tiger beetles than most any other species of our group of species, for instance, in tropical rainforest. There, there are thousands and thousands of species, and we know a little bit about the birds and the butterflies and some of the plants, but tiger beetles are still amongst the best known of all those groups. So we can use them as what we call bioindicators. We can use them to understand the rest of the forest when there's not enough time to learn about the other species that are much harder to observe or are less well known. 
You say bioindicators, but what are they indicating to you then? What, what the bioindicators use it several ways. Uh, for instance, uh, on, a, on a study in Madagascar, we actually were told, asked by the government of Madagascar to determine the boundaries of a, a border in the northeastern part of the island using tiger beetles as one of the indicators to maximize the number of species that could be preserved given the boundaries of the, of the park. So we drew the boundaries of the park using tiger beetles and, in this case, butterflies, birds, and lemurs as a way to have the smallest park still covering the most number of species. And again, because they're so well known, they could indicate for all the other species, the frogs and the, and the orchids and, and the other animals and plants for which we didn't have enough information, that we could probably be assured that the park would maximize their numbers as well. Since you've done, it looks to me like, from your biography and also from uh, some of your publications, a lot of traveling, a lot of, of it in the rainforest. Uh, one of the things I was curious about, if you have an in interesting stories or events that occurred on some of your trips. Oh, I've got lots of stories. Uh, I like to sometimes use these stories, especially with big classes, uh, because they are kind of gross sometimes. For instance, I'm apparently one of the only North Americans to ever come back from India with a worm called the guinea worm or fireworm. It's the largest round worm in the world. It's a meter long. It gets under your skin and I could actually feel it like a piece of undercooked spaghetti when I was taking a shower against my ribs. Uh, what they do is they release a, a, an enzyme that eats away to the exterior from under the skin, and they then control human behavior. They, every time that female worm wants to lay eggs, she releases that burning sensation, which is relieved immediately by water. So she tells you when she wants you to put your arm or leg in the water, and she keeps doing that for six weeks until all of her eggs are gone. I'm hoping you're worm-free now. I am worm-free now, but it was still a great experience. Switching just a little bit, because we're talking to usually young scientists, when did you first realize you wanted to be a scientist or a biologist? Well, I, I was very lucky. I don't know what it was, uh, having the right teachers, the right parents, uh, the right genes. I'm not sure what it was, but I knew when I was about six or seven years old that I wanted to grow up to be a bird watcher. And I told my parents and my teachers that's what I wanted to do course they told me right away I couldn't make any money doing that so I could think of that as a hobby but again I had to decide fairly soon that uh, it was my life and if I made a mistake at least it was my mistake and now they pay me to travel around the world maybe not watching birds so much but doing much that same kind of thing so I also understand that uh, there's a lot of luck involved there getting the right people to encourage me to, to pull out uh, what talents I do have. If you weren't a biologist would there be something else you'd like to be? Oh, I think that if I weren't a biologist, I'd probably um, make my living being a photographer, uh, maybe a nature photographer. That'd be really fun. Uh, I think also perhaps uh, being a travel agent, being a, a tour guide. That might be kind of fun as well. That probably comes from these travel guides that you've been writing for so long. Yeah, part of it, yes, too. I, I can see the downside, too. Um, I think I prefer doing it the way I do it, but I could probably lead a tour every once in a while and, and, and have a lot of fun, especially depending on how excited the people were that were, I was able to share this information with. Do you have any concerns with ecotourism? Yeah, I worked a lot with ecotourism around the world, from Africa and Southeast Asia to South America. And what we've found is that there's a fine line between ecotourism and ecoterrorism that uh, a lot of people who claim that uh, they're running lodges at, uh, at a very green way, that they are very concerned about the ecology, ends up that the green is probably more the color of the money. The ecotourism is probably one of the only ways that I've seen that really works, especially in rainforest, of, of using the rainforest for a long, long term in a very solid economic way that doesn't destroy the forest. 
if it's done right. But it, in many cases, it, people become greedy and selfish, and they can even destroy the forest using ecotourism. So we've worked a lot on trying to get a good balance there between solid economic returns, but for the long, long range and having some kind of control, either through the people who own the lodges or on the tourists themselves, uh, empowering them to be able to comment to the lodge owners what does and does not work for, for maintaining good ecotourism. Hmm. Again, since this is our Halloween edition and our first edition, one of the things I'd like you to do is, could you just give the play-by-play view of what it would be like if you were getting hunted down by a tiger beetle and and the final moments of the prey? That would be pretty pretty grim. There actually was a movie back in the 1950s, I think it was called Them, that featured tiger beetles as enlarged marauding insects invading uh, civilization. But... uh, they can, you figure, first of all, they can run probably 10 to 20 times faster than you can, at least. Uh, they've got very, very good eyes. Probably the only way you could escape them is by standing stock still and not moving because they don't perceive still things. They perceive movements more than anything else. Uh, that'd be very difficult seeing that thing coming at you with those big monstrous mandibles and big eyes and, and be able to stand still. But if you learn to do that, you could probably escape them. Otherwise, you could anticipate being grabbed by those large mandibles and bad upon, uh, those enzymes breaking you down and being torn apart very quickly. Okay, well I'm glad I'm not small enough to be uh, lunch for a tiger beetle. I have one more question. The young scientists out there, what advice do you have for them? What I've learned, especially in teaching non-majors here for the last uh, 10, 15 years, is that uh, I believe that virtually everybody has got a talent lying inside them, a passion, an obsession. And very often, uh, the problem is pulling that out, discovering what it is. And how someone discovers what their passion, what their, what their obsession, or what their talent and interest is, is sometimes difficult. And you never know what's going to do it. It could be a class you took, a teacher you had, a book you read, a movie you saw, uh, someone you talked to, a radio program, a TV program. Uh, I encourage students to try and expose that obsession, bring out that passion. The sooner they can do it, the better they are. And if they can end up having somebody pay them to do for the rest of their life something they do as a hobby anyway, just think about what kind of fun they would have and how much fun the rest of the world would be. Well, David Pearson, I'd like to thank you for visiting with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been research professor David Pearson from the ASU School of Life Sciences. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University. And even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still ask your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.